Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Before we get on to this episode, let me thank the sponsor of this podcast. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite Ultrafeed sewing machine. The Ultrafeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at Sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. You know, I thought by increasing the number of episodes I did from... Uh, once whenever I got around to it to once a week that I didn't improve my my listening audience. But the reality is my listening audience has not grown that much. It seems to be fairly consistent. And uh, I sort of feel like the extra effort I put in is not being rewarded by results. So I have to have a long and... Uh, I have to talk to myself a little bit and say, why, why am I doing this podcast What's the motivation behind it? It's not money. I'm not uh, not getting that many Patreons <laughs> that are justifying the, uh, the the time put into it yet. Hopefully that'll change. I did get another $1 Patreon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. But uh, you know, the sponsorships are good. It's nice. But really the motivation for this are the relationships that I've built. And I've got two great relationships from this podcast already, and, and those two are, are Jack, Jack Andrews, and, and Neil Fletcher. Uh, they've changed my life. I've had experiences with them that I would not have had had I not started this podcast. So it's really, it's really the relationships that develop, and they don't, there doesn't need to be a lot of them. You don't have to have a lot of them to, to have a meaningful uh, effect on your life. I'm not a social media guy. Neil handles my social media. And that's how I got a hold of Neil. That's how Neil ended up sailing. He basically wrote me an email, said, hey, Franz, I'll handle your social media if you want me to. And I said, great. What do you want for it? And he said, I don't want anything for it. And I said, okay, okay Neil, I tell you what, you're going to go sailing with me sometime if you, uh, if you want to take on this project. And, and Neil is now uh, a lifetime friend. <laughs> at least as long as one of us doesn't screw it up, which you never know. But uh, so that's sort of my motivation. I'd like to see the audience grow. So if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and uh, go into iTunes and write a review or, or whatever uh, you use to find the podcast, whatever, whatever podcast directory you use, go in and write a review. I'd really appreciate it. otherwise I hope to get a few other people like Neil and Jack to become friends in the future I'm not big on Twitter I sometimes read it I'm not big on Facebook Neil tends to let me know if somebody's written me a note in Facebook and he forwards it on to me 
But really, your way of contacting me is using the contact form at the website or writing me directly, franz1 at medsailor.com. Also, if you want to support the podcast, uh, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. I think it's forward slash medsailor, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R, and that'll take you to the medsailor page. Or go to the website, and there's a link that you can go and support the podcast on Patreon. And I have lots of potential rewards, and I'm still hoping that uh, somebody will sign up for the reward to be invited to go sailing. That's uh, a fairly expensive reward. I think it's $100 a month, but right now there's none. And I have an opening for this summer when Neil and I sail together. We've got one week, and it'll be good to have somebody else from the audience join us during that one-week sail. We'll sail from, uh, he's joining me in Patmos, and we're sailing up to Heraclea, maybe over to Mykonos, and departing in Tinos. And uh, Jack's, Jack Andrews is going to be sailing in the same area, and hope we might meet up with Jack. So if you're interested in possibly sailing with me this summer, well, you can try to write me a letter, but you're more likely to get invited if you're a Patreon at that level. So if it's something that's of interest to you, consider it. I did not get a podcast out last week. Part of the reason is, I, again, I'm so busy uh, right now, and I'm driving back and forth to the ranch usually two or three times a week. And I don't have time to schedule interviews. Uh, there's people I'd like to interview. I want to talk to Jack again. We're, we've got the continuing voyage of Jack last summer that we haven't finished up. Jack tells a good story. Uh, but I can't really schedule interviews at the ranch. I haven't got the studio up there set up very well to do interviews. Also, there's a lot of background noise of people building and saws going on and hammers hammering and staples stapling. And there's too much background noise for me to be able to do any real interviews or podcasts up at the ranch right now. But I'm driving back and forth a lot, so I thought I can do some more monologues uh, if I come up with some decent topics uh, that I want to talk about. Uh, so that's the issue right now. We have had a lot of snow again. I'm tired of it. It's muddy. Every time I go to the ranch, it is ankle-deep mud to get into the cabin, and I'm tired of it. <laughs> I'm just tired of it. I went to a meeting last week with the Angel Investment Group that I belong to, and there's a couple diehard skiers in the group. And at this time of year, I'm tired of skiing. I want to do something else. It's spring. You know, there's been times in the past when I've been out sailing on Great Salt Lake already this time of year, but it's been cold, and it's been rainy, and it's been wet, and we've got more snow. And my friend that at the Angel Investment Meeting, I said, have you, been, have you quit skiing? What are you doing now? I said, what do you mean I quit skiing? Snowbird's still open. I was skiing this morning, and the powder was up to my waist. It was fantastic. And I thought, oh, I'm tired of skiing. I want to do something else. But the snow's still good. We're still having plenty of snow in the mountains. There's snow coming down at the ranch. I slept up there a couple times this week, and I woke up in the morning with snow on the ground, a couple inches on the ground at the ranch. I got up and walked out on the deck, and I could see an animal had walked around the deck. It was a raccoon that had come in and looked in the windows and then walked around to the door and then wandered off. It's uh, It's muddy. I'd like to see it dry out, but we seem to have a lot of moisture coming through. 
for living in a desert. We seem to be getting a lot of moisture right now. If you want to sign up for the email list, you can get eight of the 16 lessons for sailing, learn to sail, the basic keelboat certification. These are audio lessons. These are to help you prepare for the written portion of the ASA 101 exam. I can't teach you how to sail in an audio course, but I can give you terminology and maneuvers and explain some of the maneuvers to you. I'm pretty good at telling stories and relating concepts in stories, and that's what I try to do in my audio series. I have This is about half of the ASA 101 course, and I also have the ASA 103 and the 104 course. So if you want to consider purchasing those audio series, I would appreciate it. It's not a big seller. <laughs> if you want to go, you can buy those on uh, Amazon or iTunes or directly from the website. If you have a choice, I'd recommend you go to the website because I get more money that way. Amazon takes a big cut. CD Baby takes a cut. And uh, iTunes takes a big cut if you buy them through those outlets. But anywhere you buy it, I appreciate it. I've been debating on what to talk about. I have not done any interviews, but I thought I would talk about, well, number one, the fuel system on a boat. Now, if this is for people that have boats or are thinking of getting boats and want to consider your fuel system. The most likely problem you're going to have on your boat is a fuel problem. Diesel engines are very reliable, and when you start running into problems, it's usually the first place you want to look at is the fuel system. So let me describe... Uh, well, let me let me tell you how I came about with the system I have on my boat. Years ago, when I'd launched the boat up in in Washington, uh, I launched it in Bellingham, Washington, took it down to Oak Harbor because that was the only marina that had space available, and then I went on the waiting list uh, for Anacortes, Cap Sandy Marina, and also Bellingham Harbor. Both those were much much better for me for sailing because at Oak Harbor I had to go through Deception Pass to get out to the islands, and you had to time that passage through Deception Pass. There were only a couple times during the day for hour periods that you could get through that pass because the currents rung so strongly through that pass. So I'm on the I'm on the waiting list, and then I get a notice from Bellingham that there's an opening at Bellingham, and then I take my boat up and put it in the Bellingham Harbor. Um, I forget the name of the harbor, but the main harbor in Bellingham, the city harbor there. And I'm only up there for about five months, and then I get a notice from Cap Santa Marina in Anacortes that, that I'm my number's up, that there's an opening and I can move down to Cap Santa, and this is in the middle of the winter. And well, and everything's put away. Uh, my sails are put away, the dinghy's put away, and, you know, I don't want to go put up the sails. I just want to go up there and motor down to, to Cap Sandy Marina and put my boat in and and uh, claim my spot. And I, that's where I was for the rest of the time I had my boat up in, in Washington State. So I get up there. I'm by myself. I fly up to Seattle, and I don't remember how I get up to uh, to Bellingham. Probably I took a bus up there or something like that, which is not easy. It's not easy to take public transportation in the United States and, and get around. But anyway, I got up to Bellingham, got on the boat that night. I did not have a full cover at the time. 
So I just sort of, the snow was on the boat. I sort of shoveled off the snow, got down below. And then the next morning, I got up, I started the engine, ran the engine for quite a while, and then backed out. There was a bit of a wind, not much of a wind, but a, a, bit, a bit of a wind. So I back out and start heading down to Anacortes. I get out of the breakwater of the harbor, and so I'm just in idle speed as I'm coming out of the harbor, and I get out of the breakwater, and then I, then I increase the throttle to my typical cruising speed of about 2,600 RPM, and it runs for a second, then the engine shuts down. And uh, I thought, oh, geez. So I try to start the engine again, it won't start. I try to start the engine again, it won't start. And then I get on the, the radio to the Coast Guard out there, <laughs> first thing they ask me, well, do you have your life jacket on? I'm thinking, huh, no, but I tell them yes anyway. I guess they think that's important to have a life jacket on. I don't sail with a life jacket all the time. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I don't. Probably should, especially in cold water like that, but I don't. So I throw down my anchor, and I'm sitting there thinking, pondering. Then they say, well, do you want us to send out a, uh, a boat to tow you in? Uh, you'll have to pay for it. And even even though my insurance has a clause that they'll pay for a tow, I didn't think about it. I said, no, let me think about this a little while. So I'm at anchor, and there's a little breeze blowing. And if I hadn't have had the anchor down or if, the, if it had been too deep to anchor, I would have been drifting around with the winds. And I might have done some damage to my boat. But I had the anchor down. It wasn't very deep. It was maybe 30 feet deep. And I'm just sitting there pondering and... As I'm sitting there pondering, I try to turn the engine over again, and, oh, lo and behold, it starts up again. So I'm thinking, okay, what's going on here? And I pull up the anchor, and I don't increase the throttle, and I go back in and tie back up at my dock. And, and I think, okay, well, it looks sounds to me like it's fuel-starved. And so I went into the engine compartment and changed the fuel filter. And lo and behold, that was a problem. It was a fuel filter problem. Well, okay, so I changed the fuel filter the next day. I, I, this is now, now the next day. The next day I get up and I motor on down to Anacortes and everything's fine. And I start thinking about this problem I had. And I, I, I always say, well, what if, what if, what if? What, what would have happened if I had been in a dangerous situation and I couldn't get my engine started? Now, we're a sailboat, right? We're not supposed to rely on engines, but... We do. <laughs> We're not all Larry and Lynn party. We do rely on our engines. And especially up in that area where you have strong currents. Up in the northwest, you have strong currents. In the Mediterranean, we don't really have... There's a couple places you have currents. The Straits of Messina, you have currents. And a couple other places. But not, as a general rule, in the Mediterranean, there are not strong currents. So, yeah, the, sort of the worst-case scenario in the Mediterranean is, well, if I lose my engine and there's no wind, I just sort of bob around for a while. If I lose my engine and there is wind, I can put up my sails and sail around. So with that in mind, I don't come into port anymore, and I used to, with the sails furled and everything put away in ship shape. I don't put my sails away till I'm tied up at the dock. At that point in time, I'll clean up and put my sails away. And the reason I don't do that is, well, what if the engine quits? How long is it going to take me to take the sail cover off 
and uh, put up the mainsail if I'm all shipshape ready to, to dock. I don't like to do that anymore. And it's because of that safety issue. If I have to put up the sails, I want to be able to do it quickly. You never know when an engine will quit. So that's the first thing nowadays. I never have my boat put away when I come into dock because that's when I'm relying on the engine. And if the engine quits I won't, and there's wind, I want to be able to use my sails to, to sail away if possible. So that's one thought. Well, later on that winter, I was talking to my friend Bill Weeby, And Bill Weeby's a professional fisherman in Alaska. And he said, you know, Franz, uh, what we do on our boats, and you know, understand a fishing boat doesn't have sails. It relies on its engines 100% of the time. He says, what we do, because this does happen, sometimes you get bad fuel and you'll clog up a fuel filter, is we have a separate fuel filter and a separate line going to that fuel filter, and we have a, a valve that we can turn to switch from one filter to another filter. And I thought, well, that's, that's smart. When I installed the engine, I put a Raycor fuel filter, fuel water separator filter, before the filter on the engine. And the first year I decided, you know, th- typical maintenance on an engine, and this is what I do every year. Uh, and last year I didn't change the fuel filter. I inspected it, but it wasn't dirty, so I didn't change it. But normally I will change the fuel filter, and I used to change the fuel filter on the engine. This is a Yanmar 3 GM30F engine, and the fuel filter on the engine, which is you know integral to the engine, is mounted on, as I'm looking at the flywheel towards the back of the engine where the propeller comes off the back, it's on the left side, and there is very little room for me to maneuver I can get my hand down that side of the engine, but not much more than that. And so I changed the fuel filter on the engine, and I had a hard time getting the seal to seal back up. It kept leaking and leaking and leaking and leaking, and finally I got it sealed. I thought, you know what, I don't want to change that fuel filter anymore. So on the primary fuel filter on my engine is the Raycor fuel filter on that engine. So I changed the the fuel filter to be a, a smaller micron filter than the engine fuel filter. And also there's more surface area on the Raycor. So even though it is a smaller micron, it's got more surface area so it allows more fuel to pass through the filter uh, quickly. So now I don't change uh, my engine fuel filter very often. I don't think I've changed it in the last 10 years. But I do change the uh, fuel filter for the Raycor filter. In addition, the problem you have in a diesel engine is getting an airlock in the system. And to bleed a diesel engine is a real headache and a pain. And once you've done it a couple times, it's not that hard, but the learning curve to do it is something you don't want to have to do if you don't, if you don't have to. So I have the fuel, the fuel tank at the bottom of the, uh, in the keel. Uh, it's about a 30-gallon fuel tank. And the feed, the fuel line feed, I have a bulb, uh, a squeeze bulb, a one-way squeeze bulb. These are, you'll see these squeeze bulbs on outboard motors. 
And the reason I put that in there is I wanted to be able to prime the Raycor fuel filter. So I have a bulb on that. So when I change my fuel filter, you unscrew this top, you take a ring off the top, and you reach in and you pop off the lid, and on the lid is attached the fuel filter. You take the fuel filter off, put a new one on, put it back in. But now you've got air uh, at the top there, and, and that's where it feeds. It feeds at the top. So if you did not have this little squeeze bulb to be able to force fuel up there, you're going to have uh, a bit of a problem getting that to feed your engine. So I put this squeeze bulb in line, in the fuel line, and that's how I prime. That's how I get all the air out of the Raycor uh, fuel filters. And it's, it's also a water separator, so it's got a clear bulb on the bottom, and you can see if you have water in your fuel. I've never had problems with water in the fuel on my boat. And one of the reasons I don't is I've in the past I have always left the fuel tank full. And a lot of people don't understand if you leave air in the fuel tank, well diesel and oxygen break down to water and that's where the water comes. It's not leaks that are letting water in, it's the the uh, breakdown of the diesel fuel with the oxygen in the tank. So if you fill up your tank you don't have much oxygen there to react with the fuel to create water. So there's a trick. There's a, there's a key concept you need to understand with diesel. If you're running through the diesel a lot, you don't need to worry about that. But if you leave it stored over the winter, you're giving it time to, uh, to build up water in the tank. And, of course, where does the water go? It goes to the bottom of the tank. And where is your fuel intake? It's at the bottom of the tank. So the first thing that's going to come up is the water before you get to the fuel, if you have very much water in there. The other thing you need to understand is there's an algae that will grow in a diesel tank, that will grow in diesel, I should say, not a diesel tank, that will grow in diesel. And so you need to, if you're storing the boat for any period of time, you need to put a biocide in there, which will prevent the growth of this algae that grows in diesel. So because I've always done that, I've always had... Uh, you know, since this one incident, I've never had a problem with clogged fuel lines. Now, let me get back to what Bill was telling me. So Bill said on their boats in Alaska, they have two fuel filters for each engine. One is the primary fuel filter that they run, and the other one is a, an emergency fuel filter that they'll, they'll switch to if they're having fuel feeding problems, which in other words, most likely, if your engine quits, it's a fuel problem. So they will be able to switch to the other fuel filter and in the meantime be able to clean the primary fuel filter. And he said, not only do, I do, do we do that, we also have a separate feed to the emergency fuel filter. So you're not teeing off the feed for the primary fuel filter. You're going to the secondary fuel filter. And not only that, we also raise it off the bottom of the tank maybe an inch and a half or two inches so it's above the primary feed for the primary fuel filter. And he said that way if there's water at the very bottom of the tank we might be able to get above the water uh, and if that fuel feed is clogged which could happen with algae growing in the fuel feed then you've got a separate uh, a separate feed for the emergency fuel filter. And that's what I did on my boat. 
And like I say, I've never had to uh, to switch to it since then, but it's always my insurance if if that ever happened. So two separate feeds, two separate feeds to two separate fuel filter water separators, and these are identical fuel filters, Raycor fuel filters I use. Uh, a smaller mesh than the primary filter on the engine, so I don't have to change the filter on the engine anymore. I just have to change the filter on the Raycor fuel filters. And that's eliminated most of the problems. So something to think about uh, when you're provisioning or getting your boat ready for serious cruising. That's really all I have to say uh, about this, but I'll tell you a bit of a story with my friend Bill. And, and in fact, I'm going to go dig out an old interview I did with him and attach it to the end of this episode. And if you want to listen to it, fine. Uh, it, this had nothing to do with sailing. This is about my friend Bill's life. We grew up, we've been friends since grade school. So it goes way back. <laughs> and he's always been an adventurer. His father was a professor of botany at, uh, at Utah State University. Bill and I went to grade school together, and I was a Cub Scout with Bill. You know, he, he's always been not, not a person I spent a lot of time with, but always an interesting character in my life, and I thought I would share an interview with him. At the end, he's a commercial fisherman in Alaska. He built his own boat, 40, I think 46-foot commercial fishing boat, I helped him deliver his boat from Port Angeles, Washington, uh, up to Ju- I got, I went as far as Juneau, Alaska, with him, and then he was taking it on over to Homer, and that was a trip I'll never forget. It was cold. It was cold, and uh, we do, I think we did it in uh, early March because he needed to get up there for the fishing season. But I'm going to attach that interview with Bill to the end of this. Uh, well, right now, I don't have anything else to say. Well, I do have something else to say. If you like this podcast, tell your friends, write a review. And if you have any thoughts, suggestions, or questions, uh, write me, franz1 at com, or use the contact form at the website. Now I'm going to attach an interview I did with Bill a long time ago. This is Franz Amison. I'm talking to my friend, my longtime friend I grew up with. Uh, in Logan, Utah, his Bill. He lives in Alaska. Bill, you you uh, told a friend of mine a story about traveling down to Brazil one time, and you never related this story to me. But my friend t- Dave, our friend Dave, told me this story, and I thought I've got to get you to tell this story online for us. So, what? Where were you going? What were you doing? You, you, I, as I recall, you had shipped a car from. Um, yeah, it's a. It sort of goes with my with my uh, career. I end up uh, have I have a real seasonal job up here. I end up fishing in the summer, and we're always looking for something to do during the during the off season. Sometimes can be quite long. So when my son was was young, I decided, well, you know, he doesn't have to be in school, and we're gonna we're gonna uh, uh, do this trip. We're gonna do a trip somewhere. And what I decided to do was to buy a a car and send it to South America and drive the length of South America. The idea was to go from uh, from Venezuela right on down to the down to Punta Arenas down in, in Argentina. And that's a pretty long story, but uh, long in the short of it was I found this car in uh, in um, uh, Florida, down in Miami, from, from a 
from a car dealer, car dealer named, car dealer named Tony. And it turns out that this was a, a salvage title. It's one of those things that uh, the car had been hit in the back. All air, airbags were gone. And uh, the only thing it was good for was parts or to export it. So uh, they wanted to export it. I wanted to export this car. And their choice was either to take the parts out of it or sell, sell it to me. And then I could, uh, uh, as long as I got it out of the USA, uh, things got a lot easier about getting it titled. That's so what I had to buy on this thing and, and putting it in a container. And there's barge service that leaves Miami and uh, it stops at a few Caribbean islands and drops the car. Eventually, it dropped the car in uh, uh, Port Cabello in uh, Port Cabello in uh, Venezuela. And that's where I first met my ride. I ended up uh, down there doing a bunch of custom stuff that took uh, forever. It took, took a solid week to get all the uh, all the paperwork done. So we spent about a week in Caracas and uh, traveling back and forth. It was a bus ride down to the Puerto Cabello, where the car was uh, uh, behind customs. So that's even all the paperwork to get the uh, car out of Hawk. Finally met the car, pulled it out of the out of the container, container and started this uh, this drive across the uh, across the continent. So that was with with uh, my wife Jane and my son Miles. He was just a uh, five year old at the time, and we were uh, doing this sort of adventure, like a <laughs> I don't know, kind of a rubber tramp type of thing. Not not a real high dollar thing, but definitely sort of in the Back of beyond, way in the backwoods. Now this uh, Venezuela thing was kind of kind of tricky. They're a little bit more regulated than some of the other uh, South American countries. And if I was ever to do it again, I probably wouldn't take the car to Venezuela. I'd try someplace a little bit looser, maybe maybe Colombia or maybe um, Peru might be a good place to get one in if you had a car from the uh, driving it down to Panama or from the west coast, you could get it in there. But uh, this way it turned out fine. We got it out of the out of the container and jumped in the car and charged up the battery and it had a few issues, but nothing real, nothing real major. It what, had some electrical what, problems for a while. What kind What kind of car was it anyway? It was a it was a Subaru Subaru Legacy, and this was in 1999. The car is actually only a few years old, so it was a station wagon, kind of perfect for a family. Looked, you know, pretty mainstream. Blended right in. It was not a uh, not a fancy car at all, and it had this uh, damage to the back that the uh, tailgate was uh, was kind of smashed in. We had it to the point where it was working, but it didn't. No way it'll look good. It's kind of just just uh, a good up looking car. So the geography is pretty interesting. From uh, Venezuela, you have, you have Caracas in the high country, and you have uh, 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 seaports down on the coast that are just hotter than blazes, so we got out of there as soon as we could. We went, uh, we'd already seen Caracas because we'd been there for a week, and we drove down across the Orinoco Basin uh, through uh, southern southern Venezuela, um, past, I guess there's some, uh, there's Angel, Angel Falls down in there, and the, the part that we liked the most actually wasn't the name brand places. They have a, a huge national park in the southern part of the country. It's called... Uh, Grand um, Grand Sabana, and it's a, a higher country, probably four or five thousand feet high, with some very interesting uh, uh, mountains, sort of tableland mountains. They call them hippies, 
and these gifts as high as 10,000 feet, um, you can climb to the top of one of them. You can't drive up there, but uh, you can get up on top of these. They're like uh, buttes in the American West, only they're a different kind of vegetation. A lot of a lot of rain up there, very very uh, pleasant climate, and kind of a lot to do. Really, a lot of a lot of little uh, hikes and parks and waterfalls and stuff you can see on the way down. So the idea of this whole trip was they're gonna gonna get on this road and just drive south through Brazil and into uh, across the Amazon and then into the uh, more more modern part of Brazil. When you look on the Brazil map, the one that they publish, there's all kinds of roads on this map. There's a what they call a perimeter road that goes around the western side of the country. That's sort of a military thing. And that's a dotted line on most maps. It's something that they want to build. They haven't really got very far on it. Pieces of it are, pieces of it are together, but uh, not, not all of them by any means. So as we came, as we came south out of Venezuela, we had uh, a couple of weeks to get the car out of the country, and that turned out to be kind of an issue. Was, was uh, how long you were allowed to keep a car in a country? And in Venezuela, that was only two weeks. So we had to get it out of there. We got into Brazil. That gave us, I think, three months or something with the car in Brazil, which was plenty of time. Now, did you have any register? Did they make you registered or anything, or was it without? Uh, did you have any documentation, like a license plate on the car? Yeah, what we did is we had the export title from Florida. I took that, and before I ever, uh, Alaska was kind of wild and free, so I took the export title. And this happens up here in Alaska all the time, is where all you have to do to get license plates in the state of Alaska is to bring the old title in. You don't have to actually show the car, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, it's a good thing. So we took the title into the DMV here in, in uh, Homer, and the lady gave us uh, plates and a title for this car. So it was a, a bureaucratic thing. There is no such thing as a salvage title in Alaska, and they gave us plates like it was just a regular car. So we did what the Floridians wanted. They took, they wanted the car out of the country, so on a barge it went. And Alaska gave us the plates and the title for the um, car. But, but really, what they do in these countries is they give you um, a temporary title. They, even, they look at your title, but they don't really care about where it's from, about whether it was Alaska or wherever. What they want to do is they give you a time limit before you have to get it registered in the in the country, and that's that varied from one country to the next, and that was kind of the the problem. You had to display the paperwork that the customs guy gave you when you came into the country to um, legally drive in the in, in the South American countries. So that was the that was the issue. You got you got 90 days to get the car out of the country. If you exceeded that, you had to pay a fine or or a, there'd be problems and uh, there were problems later on in our trip about getting the if, if you don't leave in, in the window that they give you then then all hell breaks loose but we didn't know that for a while we just went traveling through Brazil and the the uh, probably the most interesting part of that of the trip actually the car we, we had it there for I don't know four or five years and um I went down there periodically. The first trip was almost six months long, 
after that, we went down periodically. I just we'd go down for a few weeks or three weeks or something, and uh, move it, move it, or explore a different part of South America during uh, subsequent trips. But this first uh, this first stage, um, we're looking at the map and found this road that went through uh, the Grand Sabana to get us out of Venezuela. Got out of the country just fine into Brazil. They gave us the paperwork that we needed to keep going. And what they forgot to tell us was that uh, there was no road beyond Manaus. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a paved highway. There's a place called Boa Vista in the northern part of the country. And Manaus is actually quite a modern city. So from the north, you can approach Manaus by road without much problem at all. It's all, it's all paved and nice and um, quite wealthy, really. Boa Vista is a is a gold mining town. They have uh, dredges operating there, and there's there was quite a bit of, at least 10 years ago, there was quite a bit of value. And I'm sure it's even better now with the price of gold, but they uh, they have dredges operating there, and the city was was really kind of booming. It was it was it was going places. There were new cars and paving everything, and just growing like mad to to uh, uh, turn it into quite a modern place. So this was all going just fine. We went, you know, we were visiting the parks in Venezuela, and we got to do some hiking up on the Gran Sabana, and then we crossed the border into Brazil and down to Boa Vista. We went, and this was all just uh, it was it was traveling right along. It was it was, it was just fine. Hey Bill, uh, were you, after that, were you camping out? Were you, how were you uh, spending the night? Were you camping or were you staying in little uh, hotels? How are you how are you spending the nights there? So yeah. We had camping equipment. We had the uh, sleeping bags and tents, but we didn't really do it much. We we camped in a uh, campground in a park in uh, Puerto Cabello when we were getting the car, but only for a night or two. And typically, the prices of at least at that time, the prices of hotels in Brazil were just just uh, dirt cheap. And the idea of camping out when it was sweltering, sweltering hot didn't really appeal. You know, camping is more, if it, it, it's so hot that you can't be in a sleeping bag, um, well, then you're going to get eaten by the mosquitoes, and it's just not a, it, we, for, us, for us, it was a little too hardcore. And since we were in a car, it was just too easy to stop at a little hotel or a little, uh, uh, you know, bed and breakfast type of thing on the way down. And there were some beautiful there were some beautiful places to stay in Brazil. The currency at the time was pretty low, so we got maximum value. So there were some nice hotels at uh, bargain rates. So it wasn't it wasn't too primitive. There were a few days where we camped, but not not many, mostly right off the get go and um, further on, actually a year later when we were down in Argentina, we started doing a lot more a lot more camping because the weather was better and it was just a it, it was just a more pleasant experience down there. So we kept uh, we kept going along to uh, Vista. Uh, I don't know. It, it, not that we cover a whole lot every day. Maybe a couple hundred miles or three hundred miles, that kind of thing, and just kind of keep making our way south towards the city of Manaus. And Manaus is the kind of the capital of the jungle. It uh, Never really had a road system till, um, well, I don't know, till, well, I, I remember, never really had much of a road system till probably 20, 30 years ago when they got this connection 
from the north, but it is a bustling place. It imported all kinds of cars and buses and stuff into the city, and you wouldn't you wouldn't know that it was so isolated, but it definitely is. It's isolated from any kind of uh, uh, car traffic, but it's the center of operations for a whole fleet of uh, of boats. They have everything from ocean liners right on down to to dugout canoes and everything in between. All kinds of have these. Uh, a common thing is a double-decker uh, ferry boat for passenger ferries, and these were traveling all over the place. The, the uh, Manaus is at this uh, intersection of, of uh, where two large tributaries for the Amazon join up, and then it becomes this huge waterway to the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a, it's a water-based economy there. They have all kinds of resources coming in, and it's a supply route for the smaller villages and towns up the up the rivers from uh, from Manaus. So that's another very interesting place to visit. It's a it's the way the way to do it simply is just to fly in from Miami. Bang bang, there you are, and you can um, uh, visit the visit the town and the surroundings quite easily. There's there's a bit of a road system now that goes down the river, down down the Amazon, probably 30, 40 miles before it pinches out. And this road I'm talking about that goes north towards Boa Vista. Outside of that, there's uh, some great trips that uh, go up the river on the Rio Negro into a there's sort of a braided area of uh, river where it splits into a lot of different channels, and that's got a lot of wildlife. And um, I, I'm not even sure it's a it's a, a bit of an unexplored place, uh, or it was. I think maybe now there's getting a few tourist boats that go up there, but. Uh, it's a place that would be well worth visiting. We didn't. We had our car, and we had a plan. We were going to take this car and cross the Amazon River on a ferry and continue on on what was pitched on the highway map as being a road that goes from Manaus down to the central part of Brazil. So I was telling you about this uh, uh, dotted line, this uh, perimeter road that was on the map. And we could see that that one didn't exist, but there was a full-on red highway line on our map that said that there was a, a road that goes from Manaus south towards, I forgot the name of the city, but uh, it goes southwest and into the heart, uh, heart of Brazil. Now, as it turns out, when we got to uh, Manaus, started asking around about the ferry boats and this and that, and, and we didn't know any any Portuguese, so we had a little problem there. But it finally became clear that there was there was no ferry, there was no boat that took you across the Amazon. And the reason there was no boat to take you across the Amazon is because there was no boat ramp on the other side. There was no way to take a car off and put you off on a road because the road didn't exist. The road had been there was some sort of mud track that had fallen in into disuse. I don't know what it was. But I guess it was some poor excuse to put a put a line on a map as it was, but was completely not utilized. So Manaus is on the north. And Manaus is on the north side of the river. Yeah, Manaus is on the is actually on the uh, uh, peninsula between the two. So the Rio Negro, uh, a huge river, goes goes uh, on one side, and the Solomones, the mainstream of the Amazon goes on the other, 
and then Alice is right in between those two. So that set up a beautiful location. You can look downstream at the two pieces of the Amazon coming together, and it's like a, a sea, an inland sea. It's a, a very wide, massive amount of water that's there. So it's more like traveling well, a bit on, on a lake, really. It's not rough or anything. And you can see the current. There's quite a bit of current. But uh, like I was saying, they have every boat you can imagine bustling about about there. This uh, river, it's, uh, it fluctuates in, in volume tremendously. There's a uh, wet season, a rainy season, where the river will come up like 50 feet. And so they've accommodated this by putting floating uh, docks for the uh, ocean liners. So truck ramps that go out into the current and at, at uh, low season, then you're, you're traveling, you know, the, the ramps go downhill quite steeply to get down to where the boats are. And at the high season, well, the water can come high enough to where it you know, nearly floods the city of Manaus. So it's a huge, huge annual fluctuation that comes through there. So we had this um, uh, problem because <laughs> we had a car in Manaus and uh, uh, no real, no no ferry, no road on the other side. And my wife was not pleased about this. She uh, she was um, <laughs> she was a little dismayed that I hadn't done better research. But I was doing my best. I was trying. So we had a, had a, a problem there sitting in the house. And it turned out that with um, a bunch of good fortune, they had a, a ferry, uh, a government-owned boat, uh, I think it was pretty highly subsidized, that made a two-week trip. It made a trip up and down the Amazon from Manaus down to uh, Palaim on the Atlantic coast. And this uh, this ferry, we could have been in real trouble if it had just left or, if we, you know, if we'd uh, had to wait, we could have been stuck in Manaus for quite a while. As it turned out, we were stuck in Manaus all of, like, six hours. We got there. They finally pointed out that, uh, that oh, you know, to, to get out of here, you can uh, take the, the ferry down past Santorin and to Belém, to Belém, on this uh, national ferry. The ferry was built for uh, for people. It wasn't a car ferry at all. And they have sort of a little box in the middle of the thing where they could haul, I guess it was a half a dozen, maybe a dozen cars could go in there. Just cars, no trucks. All of the uh, freight that came up and down the Amazon goes on uh, flat barges out. Just, you know, they, they put it on like containers or, or on a, Flood uh, barge and take it up and down with tugs. That wasn't really an option because those can't carry a uh, passenger. So we had really good luck. We put our car in the middle of this uh, state ferry and we rode the, uh, down the Amazon on this uh, on this uh, government boat. And it was the coolest thing. It ended up um, uh, it was a double decker thing, so it had a real uh, High, high, I don't know what you'd call it. There's a deck up top. It was open to the sun, and that was not used at all during the day. It was just too hot. And they had a fan tail on the back. And the place that we all stayed was in the mid-deck, mid which was open to the air. So this, this uh, ferry was traveling, traveling about eight knots, I guess. And there was this breeze coming through the, 
uh, workings of the ferry were just wide, no windows, just wide open. So we had this this uh, breeze that came through uh, the place where everybody was riding. That was a, it was just barely cool enough to be tolerable. It was really hot down there in the middle of the day on the Amazon. The sun was beat down, wasn't much wind, and the only the only cooling that we had was kind of staying in the shade and get the breeze that was produced by the boat moving forward. So there we were, stuck on this boat. That was a, gosh, I can't remember, three or four-day trip, three-day trip to get down from uh, Manaus to, uh, to Belém on this boat. So did you, have, did, was, did you have the provisions necessary? Did you have uh, food and water and everything you needed on this trip then when you got on the boat? They have, they, we had some groceries, so just we got separated from our car. The car's down in the in the uh, in the in the hold, and we were up on this uh, this deck, this mezzanine deck, I guess you would call it. And we had some food. They had a kitchen where they would cook for everybody, but it was a very, you know, they made something like soup, or they would make one dish and you know, a stew type of thing. It was very, uh, it didn't. Not very appetizing stuff. I think I ate it once. Mostly we just, just uh, uh, eat what we brought along. And they had a bit of a store. Had, you could buy a few things. You know, there were probably 100 people on this boat, and they were uh, eating out of sack lunches like we were, or else they'd buy a little bit, or else they'd go to the... It wasn't a cafeteria. It was just sort of a kitchen where you could get a little bit of food to get you get you going. So this whole thing that wasn't like we had staterooms or anything like that. This was just wide open to the air, and they had uh, like steel playpens where they had these uh, bars and sort of checkerboard affair where people would kind of camp out inside these uh, pens. And they were smart. The people that came down, they all had hammocks. So they'd tie these hammocks onto the rails and just uh, spend a while, a while the day away in these hammocks, and that was a pretty good way of traveling. You could, you know, they cool on all sides. Um, once you learned how to sleep in a hammock, you could just do just fine. Now, we didn't have any of that. We didn't have any hammocks. What we had was thermorest pads, and that was a bad idea because then we were sleeping on the deck. It was quite a bit hotter and not the cleanest thing. That you can, as you can imagine, it wasn't the cleanest thing you could find. So we had our playpen. We were on the floor. Everybody's kind of looking at us and wondering why we didn't have hammocks like the rest of the crowd. So that's the kind of the, the uh, living style was we were all in this, this sort of area, communal living type of thing, and people trying to talk to us, but we didn't know a word of, of uh, Portuguese. And that was a, kind of a drawback. If we didn't know a little bit more language, it would have been more interesting to be able to talk to the folks because these were not, these were the locals. These were actually not high-dollar locals. Brazil is very stratified economically. The people that have money fly out of Manaus. They don't take this boat. So anybody with a lot of money would, would be uh, on a plane. And anybody that's too poor couldn't even afford the ferry ride. So they were lining the banks of the Amazon where there were quite a few uh, little uh, cabins and houses where people would just live in their lives and never... You know, they didn't ever travel because they didn't have any money to travel. They couldn't afford even so much as a as a ferry ride. So we were kind of in the middle class, I guess is what you'd call it. These folks were 
there are a bunch of kids going to school and uh, uh, oh, who else would be on? Farmers, I guess, or somebody that had had made a little bit of money and maybe traveling to see some relatives. So it was very, very amiable, very uh, sociable place. Everybody was having a pretty good time. So there we were, just traveling with these folks. We had a couple of a uh, couple of interesting experiences there. That this was on this ferry was on a regular schedule, and the folks that were on the living on the shore of the Amazon knew it, knew that, and they were living in dugout canoes and living with you know just a corn-based economy. I think basically eating corn and not much else, and so. Uh, They'd get in their dugouts, and when this boat came by, people would throw them stuff. They'd take a, a plastic grocery bag and stick, you know, a T-shirt in it or just some sort of present, tie it up in the bag and throw it off the side of the vessel as it went scooting by. And these guys, these kids were were just amazing uh, boatmen. They'd have these little dugouts, and they'd come out and chase these bags around and, and uh, yell at the, uh, you know, just sort of, Say hello to everybody on the boats, and, and then two weeks later they do the same thing. So this, for those guys, was a big deal in their life. You know, the, the ferry was coming by, and they'd come and meet it, and maybe they'd get a shirt out of the deal. It was uh, pretty, uh, pretty amazing. So these were just further down the river. These were just gi- these were just gifts that people were giving to the the people that lived along the river. Just kind gifts, then. Yeah, just kind of just giving them something. It was like. Um, uh, a charity of some sort, you know, just, just give us give somebody the shirt off your back is what it looked like to be. You had, a, had an extra t-shirt that you didn't like very much, you could throw that over a pants or maybe a pair of shoes. You didn't want to throw anything that sank, and I didn't see them throw, I didn't see them throw money. I don't know whether there was money in these plastic bags or not. It was, it was plastic grocery bags that kept stuff afloat, and this would work when you went past a village where the where the ferry approached the beach, it was uh, the the river was you know a solid mile across, and this happened would it happened over and over again, but when the channel approached the beach and there were people living on the shore, then there'd be this sort of scurry of activity and people would come to the, go to the rail on the on the uh, ferry and throw stuff over, so that was pretty nice. Then later later I won't. Later on, this happened again, but I'll, uh, I'll get to that in a minute. What we had uh, uh, in the evenings, this was a pretty quiet place in the afternoon, hot, and everybody would just be in their hammocks uh, uh, sleeping, the, sleeping the afternoon away. But as soon as the sun went down, then things would start to cool off. You know, it's kind of, it gets real pleasant in the, in the evenings there. It gets, uh, gets dark real fast. You know, the sun doesn't doesn't go on an angle when it goes into the when it when it goes down it's a equator straight down deal plunk you know uh, half hour later after the after the sun is hot and bright maybe a half hour later it's pretty much pitch black so it doesn't it doesn't take long for it to to go down and it happens it happens every day at the same time so there's sort of this this sundown um uh sundowner affair where uh, people just start to come out come out and it's a pleasant time to uh, for conversation and discussion and and people that go sit on this fan deck uh, I'm telling you about fan tail at the back of the boat and uh, there were a few tables back there and the guys selling some beer out of the out of a cooler 
And it was just the coolest thing. Pretty soon somebody turned on a uh, radio to get one of those little stereo, stereo radios and set that up. And people start to dance, and it was just the just the most interesting thing. I really, I really liked it. I, I had a, a a good time sitting on that on that sand tail watching. They knew how to dance. There were some amazing, amazing dancers there. They'd get out, and so that would go on. Probably half the night. I don't know. I didn't stay up as late as the as the kids did. But it was very much of a kind of a uh, it was more than a single scene. But there was a single scene there, and then also the grown ups would hang out you know, around the outside and just let the breeze blow by. And so I don't know, let the breeze blow by, drink a little beer, and look at the Amazon over the rail. So a very pleasant part of the trip was was. Uh, that whole deal. So on we went. After a day or two of this, the Amazon is a big river at this point. We went past two other large cities. One of them was called Centorim, and it does indeed have a road that goes from the south to Centorim. But at the time of year that we went by, the ferry couldn't unload cars at Centorim. It was too far down the beach. So we were stuck with our car in this uh, in this ferry. That turned out to be a good thing. It was another another day and a half or so to get down to Belém, and that was another fine part of the trip. It was a, a good thing to do to go down, keep keep on going. What happens below Santa Rem, uh, a few miles below? I forget the exact name of the town, but the Amazon itself splits into a number of different uh, channels, and it's like going through an there's these big doors up ahead. You look, and there's pieces of jungle, and one one branch of the river goes one way, and one branch goes the other way, and they're all huge channels. They're just they're massive, uh, uh, massive river at this point. And our ferry boat was quite a small thing, and we started winding through these channels at the bottom. It's, I guess it'd be the, the top of the Amazon Delta, and we. Uh, uh, we're running through these channels to get to Belém. It was probably the better, oh, it was at least a day to get through that. And there's a whole a whole uh, culture living down there. It's not, I wouldn't say it was indigenous folks, but it's people that are making a in a very uh, basic way, subsistence living down there. And they just lived on the water. The boys, and, boys were on the water, and there's a few farms up on the high country, and I think a lot of them made money by uh, harvesting timber, by chopping down the rainforest, basically, is what it would be. But there's quite quite a bunch of them there, and they, too, knew about the about schedule for the ferry. And there was one place where these boys were good enough with their, uh, with their dugouts that they could catch the ferry. They'd make kind of a sprint, and they'd wait for the ferry to go by, and they'd sprint up, with their boat, and they get it going fast enough where they could throw a line over the side of the ferry boat rail, and all of a sudden their little dugout is surfing along at eight knots. It's just flying, and they come aboard and then talk to everybody. So the the boat is hanging there, bouncing around in the waves, and these boys are up on the on the boat having a little ride. So they come along for oh I don't know half an hour, forty five minutes, and uh, shoot the breeze with whoever talked to them and. Try to get hold of a, a, a little begging, I guess is what you'd say. Try to get 
a dollar or two for for a tip or whatever, just to try to make a living doing this. And then they'd, uh, you know, they didn't want to get too far from home, so back to the stern they'd go. They dangled their kayak off the stern in the in the prop wash, so the the uh, dugouts just bouncing around in the foam back there. And then they tie it loose and dive into the Amazon, so that the boat's leaving them. They just they just dive into the water and jump into their kayak, into their uh, dugout, and paddle it on home. But they, no life jackets, nothing like that. But they were the most, uh, very able boatmen and very at home in the water. They they were like a seal, you know. <laughs> They'd be in the water one minute and out the next and very good at this stuff. And, you know, people, if you tried that on a ferry in the States, the people would speak out so bad that they it would never go. But down there, it was just a, captain of the ferry didn't care nobody else cared i didn't see anybody get hurt but uh <laughs> i guess it could have to get ground up in the prop or something on the ferry boat but this was all uh just uh, uh every day every time the ferry come by these kids would come out and it was kind of the highlight of their week i guess there wasn't much going on down there except uh, the occasional boat going by so we had the the ferry boat that was uh carrying passengers. There was some other river traffic. There were some boats and going ships. I remember um, some Japanese loading uh, timber, uh, uh, a lot of timber at just up the upper river, just up the river from Belém is where we saw this. So it was a pretty interesting uh, little diversion from the usual tourist trip. I think uh, I recommend it to anybody. I think Manaus would be a great place to go. Don't have to take the ferry boat. There's lots of uh, smaller passenger boats. Not uh, they're not government run. They're private vessels, and it uh, there's a network of uh, of rivers that start from Manaus. I think I tried to do it again. I'd probably go upstream next time because I've been downstream now. But uh, I think uh, it's a great spot for anybody that likes. Watercraft, if you like boats, a good place to go. So, did, Bill, where did you eventually get your boat off? I mean, your car off the boat then? Where did you finally get off? Okay. So, the logistics of this whole thing is you got to get a car to Manaus, and that comes from the north the easiest. Uh, it comes through Venezuela. There is no other road to Manaus that I know of that actually exists. Uh, once you get to Manaus, you get onto a downriver bound vessel. You could you could put your car on a barge and ride a different boat down. Uh, that would be a little problematic. Uh, or you can ride the state vessel, the state ferry. I imagine that's improved. They, they. I looked at it again a few years ago, and I think there's a ferry now that has air conditioning, and it goes from Manaus down to Santa Rem. They made a stop there. They made a stop at another town or two, and then it goes to the the city of Belém in. Uh, Right at uh, tidewater in uh, in uh, Brazil, so it's right on the eastern coast there. So that that was really good. We never actually saw the Atlantic Ocean. I think that was still another uh, 50 miles away in the in the Delta country. You could spend a while just with a skiff and an outboard in the in the uh, uh, channels down there at the outside of Belém. That would be another fine trip. So, Bill, when you yeah. when you um, we, we, so this was totally unanticipated. This this whole boat ride down the Amazon was was basically uh, an accident, wasn't it? 
Yeah, this was this was an adaptation. This was a this was a plan as you go. The plan didn't include a river trip. My wife's a runner, and she doesn't really like being cooped up on a boat. And she was a little um, she was a little miffed that I'd done this to her. She was she was sure that I should have done a better better job of planning of <laughs> finding out if there was a road or not. And uh, that didn't go over so well. It did go. Uh, I, I we uh, didn't have much time in the Nauts. There's it's an interesting city. We got an opera house there, and we drove. We did a drive by of the opera house that's been there for a hundred years. It's kind of their landmark tourist attraction. We saw the thing, but not from the inside. We saw that on the way to get to catch the ferry before the ferry boat left. So this was all unanticipated. And it was just, uh, right on us, it was just raw luck. You know, it was something that it looked like it might have been going to be a very uh, a big hassle. And it turned out that it was not. It was a, it was a beautiful thing. There, uh, that was one of the finest travel trips I've done. I, I just remember sitting on the fan tail of that vessel watching these kids dance. And and they were beautiful. There were, there were some women there that were just gorgeous and it was uh, and just quite the quite the uh, cultural experience for us. I really liked it. So for that trip that you took, how far did you eventually? I mean, we'll pro- we'll probably talk about other parts of this trip or other parts of your stories because I, I think I mentioned in one of my first two podcasts that uh, that I had so much travel envy of you as a kid when I when I took you from uh, Logan, Utah, out to. Uh, to drop you off your hitchhiking trip around, uh, I think you hitchhiked to, to New York and then around to New York, you caught a, <laughs> you caught a flight to, I think, Morocco, was that right? And then around... I, yeah, I, that, was, that was one of the... Yeah. I mean, I, I dropped, I, I dropped you off. And I dropped you off and you continued on and I had so much travel envy of you at the time that, that you got a lot of stories to tell and, and I'm probably going to get you back to tell more stories because you're a good storyteller and, and you've had a lot of experiences. So I uh, appreciate it, Bill. And and maybe with you telling yeah, your you story. Know, Go ahead. You know, you know Franz, that this, there's other stuff on this trip, but it's better to kind of piece it together rather than just let it drone on. You can end up, if you, it ends up being, you're going to have to cut this, but it ends up being a big travel, sort of big travel log after a while. It's better just to pick let me think about it and pick a piece or two of this other trip. Because there, there was, you know, like I was telling you, this this car didn't disappear. We were down there for this, this six-month trip, and, and we left it parked in uh, South America one year. and it, We left it parked in Argentina one year, and we parked it in Chile twice, I think. And I think what I should have done is parked it in Paraguay. That would have been, those are kind of, that's kind of a lawless place, and I think you pretty much do as you please down there. But the other other places we'd leave it, I'd have to go back. You know, Argentina was good. They gave you eight months. I was looking for a place where they give you a year of uh, temporary registration. But if I could talk about talk about that at a different time, this is this this uh, definitely broke the trip up. This this uh, boat ride down the down the Amazon. It's one of the world's great river. You could do it. You could do it in any number of ways. You know, you could do it like we did on the ferry boat. You know, without a car, would probably make some sense. You know, just fly into Manaus and and uh, jump on one of the one of the boats. You could do it as a, as a planned trip. I'm sure there's uh, there's uh, tour travel agents that will that will arrange it so you could uh, 
you know, that you don't have to worry about anything. But the beautiful thing is to do it where you're just sort of randomly pick a vessel when you get there, have a look at it, make sure it's not going to sink. It doesn't look like it's going to sink anyway. And jump aboard and just go some random place. It doesn't have to be Belaine. It could be just a few miles up the river or a few miles down the river. There's a there's another port um, down the river from Belaine that might be good. You could you could actually do it with a dugout or some just real small boat, float down the Amazon for a day or probably two days to get down there, and then take the bus back. It's a it's another uh, another uh, that's a paid road. That's another one of the other paid roads that leaves Manaus, but it's not very uh, it's not very far away. So yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a beautiful place to travel. It's a little bit hot. You have to watch out for the uh, the day. You know, you want to be in the shade in the middle of the afternoon, and it's real easy to get into, into the siesta mode. But as I, as I was saying, it just blossoms into something really remarkable in the evenings. It's kind of a kind of that's when the life is led down there. Great story, Bill. Thanks for sharing it with us. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.